Hey, it's Pastor Sam. I want to thank you for tuning into this week's sermon, which is from our current sermon series called Our Aim, as we look at the mission of Sacred City Church, which is to make disciples, plant churches, and renew the city. You can find more information about Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois at scmoline.com. of the Lord from Nehemiah 12, 27 through 47. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of, Nato- of the Natophanites, also from Beth Gilgal, and from the region of Geba and Asmabeth. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem, and the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate, and after them went Hosea and half of the leaders of Judah, and Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shumiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priest's sons with trumpets. Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shumiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zachar, son of Asaph, and his relatives, Shumea, Azarel, Melali, Gilali, Mai, Nathanael, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David from the man of God. And Ezra the scribe went before them. At the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David, at the ascent of the wall, above the house of David, to the water gate to the east, The choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim and the gate of Yeshaneah and by the fish gate and the tower of Hananel and the tower of the hundred to the sheep gate and then came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me, and the priest, Eliakim, Maaseah, Minyamin, Micaiah, Elioenai, Zechariah, and Haniah with trumpets, and Maaseah, Shumean, Eleazar, Uzai, Geohanan, Malchijan, Elam and Ezer, and the singers sang with Jezrahiah as their leader. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes, 
to gather into them portions required by law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered, and they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for their singers and the gatekeepers. And they set apart that which was for the Levites. And the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, this is the penultimate sermon from our sermon series called Rebuilding the Ruins. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 12, we have only one chapter left that we'll tackle uh, next week. And we've been in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. They've been uh, complementary uh, books that have, in our Bibles, have been separated, but originally were put together as one book. We started at the beginning of 2022 with Ezra, took a little break, and then jumped back into Nehemiah. And as we arrive at the second to last chapter of this, this story of Nehemiah, um, what we see is a night and day difference from chapter one. When we open up Nehemiah chapter one, it starts with Nehemiah in a distant land, weeping for days over his hometown that's in ruins. He heard from some of his buddies, his kinsmen that came to visit him in, in Persia, and they, they told him that Jerusalem and its walls had been toppled down to the great shame of its people. And so Nehemiah hears this, he weeps, he's saddened by the news, and in his sorrow he cries out to God, he prays, dear Lord, give success to your servant. And God graciously responds to Nehemiah's plea and, and gives Nehemiah a vision to return back home, to go and to rise up and build. And the story of Nehemiah, chapters one, two, three, four, five, all the way up to six, tell a story of pressing through hardship, hate, sabotage, so that Nehemiah would lead the people of God to rebuild what had been destroyed. And as we come toward the end of the story, as this story here winds down, what we see is that the people of God turn up in chapter 12. What we see in verse 27, where our passage begins today, is a dedication celebration of the wall that has been rebuilt. And what this is, is a celebration that is obnoxiously loud and obnoxiously joyful. It goes from heartbreak in chapter one to breaking the sound barrier with joy by the end of chapter 12. God made his people rejoice with great joy. It's as what Psalm 30 says, that God turns mourning to dancing because that's the kind of God that our God is. That's what God does and still does today. Now as we unpack this passage, I wanna show you that Israel certainly had a lot to rejoice in. But what I want to show you is that we have an even greater reason to rejoice today. And I want to make that clear to you. I want to show you how God makes Christians the world's most joyful people. How God makes us the world's most joyful people and sustains us in a joyful life. 
Now, chapter 12, as we open it up here, I, I think that it could, might as well double as a manual for throwing parties. Now, the people who think that the Bible is boring just simply don't read their Bibles, because the Bible is packed full of parties and festivals and celebrations, and chapter 12 might be the how-to manual on how to throw a great party, because in this passage, we see all the key ingredients that you need to throw a killer party, right? You need a reason. That's usually, you gotta have a reason to party. You need people. You gotta have some music. You gotta have food. And then, of course, gifts are always an indicator of a great party. And what we see here with God's people as they're huddled up in the city of Jerusalem, the newly rebuilt city of Jerusalem, we see that they have a reason. Their reason is God has sustained them in this huge task of rebuilding the ruins. And as they stand with the work accomplished, they are dedicating the walls of Jerusalem. They've, they've put in 52 days of back-breaking work, like light speed. I mean, we're talking about two and a half miles of, of walls that's being rebuilt, eight to, to 20 feet tall in some places. They're stacking stones, building gates and doors, and as they started with not much of a city, Jerusalem is now back on the map. It's, it's moved back toward its former glory. It's not totally there, but it's moving in the right direction. And against all odds, against all the sabotage, against all the opposition, God used his people to accomplish what seemed impossible. But the interesting thing the thing that's even more profound than these walls being thrown up is that, that while the men were busy moving stone, God was busy moving men and women. The city walls were not the only thing that was being rebuilt in this time frame. God was doing his own rebuilding project himself where he was rebuilding for himself a certain kind of people, a people who had been convicted by the word of God, people who had been moved to repentance and covenant renewal, vowing to walk according to God's ways. And what we see is this, this, um, this people who at the beginning had broken affections, ulterior motives, um, hearts that were not in uh, soul allegiance to God. Now, we see people whose hearts are fixed on God. We see people who love God's word. We see people who are bought into God's purpose in the world and are willing to sacrifice and live into that cause. And so the external transformation that we see through the book of Nehemiah as the walls go up is just the tip of the iceberg of the change that's been going on beneath the surface, the internal transformation of God's people. And so there's your reason. The wall's up, the people have been transformed, and you can see that this really is a celebration of two different but connected projects because one of the ways that God changes people is by shooting them out on his mission. right? God doesn't say, hey, um, the first thing I'm gonna do with you is just change you and then shoot you out, like, and what I mean by that is change you totally, like from, from the beginning to end, totally changed, perfected, and then you can go out and do the work. That's not how it works. God calls us into his family. He adopts us as sons and daughters. And just as quickly as he calls us back into his, into his embrace, he sends us back out 
on his mission to proclaim to the world the excellencies of the one who saved us. And so we see God working through his people and the people working on God's cause. And, and this, this gets expressed here. We, we see this awareness of it's not just a cause of man. It's just not a project for man, but God's hand is in it, and God is moving through them in the, in the way that the people respond and celebrate and dedicate the wall. They're not, they're not patting themselves on the back and saying, yeah, we did it. Like, look at how good we are. Look, you know, this was not another babble scenario where, where they're like, let us show God how good we are. The people have this understanding that from the very beginning, the hand of God was on them and was sustaining the work that they were doing. And so their, their celebration isn't a, a boastful look at we did, but rather a boast in the Lord's work and what God has done. And so... They have a reason. Now, the next thing, if you're going to throw a great party, is uh, you need people to party with. And what we saw last week at the beginning of, well, really all of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12, was you see the city of Jerusalem being repopulated. For the first time in a long time, people are being called back to this city, this, this, what, what really was viewed as the epicenter of the universe, because that's where God's temple was, where God himself would dwell among his people. So we saw the city being resettled last week, but now in, verse, in chapters 12, uh, we see more people from the outside surrounding areas being called in. And these people they call in, we're told that... Um, in verse 27, that they sought the Levites in all their places. So they bring in the Levites, these servants of the temple. They call them in to come and join the party. So now we've got a reason. We've got people to celebrate. And now you need one of the most crucial party ingredients, music, right? What's a party without music? Now, this might shock you, but back in their day, they didn't have Spotify, all right? They couldn't just turn on the music. So what they needed, they called up the singers and the musicians with their gear. You keep reading into verse 27, they, they call, or 28, and the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages. And they brought with them their instruments. You got singers, you've got horn players, you've got people that are drumming, playing the cymbals, harp, lyre. They're all there bringing their, their music making instruments to make a joyful and loud noise unto the Lord. And as, as the congregation starts to form, Nehemiah says, I'm gonna, we're, we're gonna do this a little different here. Instead of just one big party, this is too big of a celebration for just one party, we're gonna split up and have two parties. And what we're going to do is, is create two choirs. In verse 31, we see Ezra leading a choir that's sent on a southbound direction around uh, the city. And then you have Nehemiah, who's, who's with the other congregation, who follows a northbound direction around the city. And so they, they all walk around. You've got these two giant choirs walking through the city, making noise, singing, proclaiming. And you could, one wonders what exactly they would be singing. Like, what kind of songs are they singing for such a, an occasion like this? Well, the hymn book of God, the Psalms, 
provide them a, a near perfect psalm to sing. Psalm 48, verse 12 says this. Walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider her ramparts, go through the citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Right, the people boasting in the work of the Lord, boasting in what God has done in the midst, the fact that they have a city to walk around now. And as these two choirs make their way around, we see in verse 40, there's a, a rendezvous point for them in the temple. Um, and this is where things really start to get a little, little crazy. Because um, as the choirs join together, their voices, their instruments, their singing, they're making loud, we see the priests uh, doing what I would call like a barbecue here. They're, they're offering great sacrifices. So the, the sacrifices, these offerings, they would bring an animal sacrifice. They have this giant pit that was the altar, flames going up, and they would throw these offerings, these sacrifices onto. So you have the aroma, I mean, a, a barbecue smell almost, right? And so they, they got the music, they got the people, they got the reason, they got the food, and they're celebrating. And this is a, a special moment, that there was an intensity to the celebration that I don't think most of us have ever experienced before. Like, nobody has ever partied this hard, to my knowledge. Because five times in verse 43, the word joy is used. Jump down there. And they offered great sacrifices that day. Uh, where did I go here? And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for, the God, for God made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Right, we're talking about an explosive form of joy here. All the people gathered together, the clergy, the leaders, men, women, kids, from top to bottom, front to back, all of the people swept up in this moment, this giant celebration. And I bet you that if you were there, not only would we hear the voices proclaiming and the trumpets blasting and the cymbals crashing, I bet you could hear even the stones crying out with joy. This was so loud. It says that their joy was heard from far away. Now, maybe, maybe you've thrown a party before uh, where... The cops showed up because your neighbors called. Hey, it's pretty noisy, too loud. I need to dial it back, right? In fact, when, when we were doing our, our par parking lot services uh, a couple summers ago, we, we'd have to navigate that with our neighbors, right? Too loud, it's too loud. Got to dial it back, right? So m maybe you've had an experience like that where your neighbors, the, the nearby uh, houses are, are like, they can hear what's going on in your house. This was even greater than that because it's not just their neighbors, it's neighboring cities, right? Like, um, could you imagine throwing a party here in the center of Moline and over in East Moline, they could hear what's going on. Now, mind you, they don't have amplification, right? They don't have boom boxes. They don't have speakers. They can't crank out the watts like we can now. This is just the pure, raw volume of their voices, their instruments blasting with joy. What we see in Jerusalem is magnificent. We see the joy of God's people 
spilling out beyond the city walls. We see the joy of God's people permeating the atmosphere. Now imagine that this moment was a glorious but momentary foretaste of what it's like to be in heaven. To hear the blasts of joy, the saints proclaiming the goodness of God, all angels and creation singing. Because that, that really is what, what heaven is. Heaven is, uh, the psalmist says, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That there's a kind of joy in the kingdom of heaven that is, words fail to describe it. Right? It's, it's this obnoxious kind of joy that this moment here is, is tipping its hat to, right? We, we might just scratching the surface of the kind of raw joy that God has for his people in his presence. But what we need to see here is that in order for these people to enjoy this celestial moment of joy, something important had to occur back in verse 30. Something that I skipped over here as I'm giving you the narrative, something that was crucial to the story. And that is that the people, places, and things needed to be purified in order to take part in this kind of joy. We see this in verse 30. I'll tell you, Siri. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves. Okay, so, so we see this act of purification, of, of this cleansing that takes place. So the leaders purified themselves, and they purified the people, and the gates and the walls. So here you see it. The people, the places, the things needed to be purified in order to enter into this joy. Now, this is a unique celebration, so there's, there's no clear scriptural um, instruction on what it looks like to purify oneself for this. But based on other purification codes and regulations that are given in the scriptures, we can guess that this act of purification probably involves some kind of washing of water, some bathing. There's probably some kind of animal sacrifice that was offered up, uh, a food fast or even a fast of marital benefits, if you know what I'm saying. Um, there's this, this restraint of, of, of partaking or, or an act of cleansing, uh, of setting yourself apart for something sacred, something special happening at this unique time. And regardless of what this purification process was, this, the fact that there was a purification process tells us something important. It tells us that the people, the places, and things were unfit in their natural state. That there was some kind of, of corruption that happened. There was something that made, that disqualified God's people and even the places and things from participating in this dedication ceremony. And we even get a hint of this in Psalm um, 24. David speaks of this. He says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and the righteous 
from the God of his salvation. See, the people of Israel knew that you couldn't just waltz into God's presence. You couldn't just strut on into the temple as you were. Something profound needed to happen, something needing to address your condition that would make you more fit for the presence of God and for his service. Now, this speaks to the reality of sin. See, the thing that makes people unfit is sin. Sin defiles people, defiles stuff and places. And one of the words that the scriptures use as, as we talk about sin um, is being unclean, being filthy, being defiled. And up until relatively recent history, within the last three or four months, Jerusalem was a desecrated place. The walls torn down. Um, pagans had infiltrated. In fact, long before the walls came down, um, the temple had been infiltrated by uh, the syncretism, right? Worship that isn't devoted purely to God, but this mixing of religions from the neighboring pagans. The gates of the city had failed to keep out evil, to, to maintain a sacredness, a distinctiveness of God's people. And the people themselves found that they were also filthy. They, they could not keep the law of God, and they themselves were unclean down to the core. Now, here's the thing. Unless uncleanliness, unless that sin filth is dealt with, joy will be impossible. You might get snippets of false and fading joys, counterfeit joys. But if your filth, if your dirtiness isn't properly addressed, joy, true joy, lasting joy will always be out of reach. Now in the, in the void of joy, if we are in fact unclean, if sin has defiled us and makes joy beyond our reach, in the void of joy, there's shame. This is exactly what Adam and Eve experienced in Genesis chapter three. That they, in the beginning, they got to enjoy God. They got to enjoy creation. They got to enjoy this blissful existence in a perfect garden. And in one bite, they go from experiencing this joy, walking with God in the cool of the day, being naked and unashamed, to being ashamed and hiding and blaming each other for the wrong that was done. And at the end of Genesis chapter 3, we see this physical distance between Adam and Eve and God placed, that they were exiled from the garden, or if you view it this way, they were separated from God and his joy. And the curse that's pronounced over Adam and Eve uh, attests to this. There's, there's hardship now in life. By the sweat of his brow, Adam will work to gain uh, bread from the ground. By, in, in child rearing and, and labor and delivery will become incredibly physically taxing 
for women. And the dynamics between husband and wife will be compromised. So joy, that the marital union of joy, which God intended for all married people to enjoy together, will be fractured. We see this distancing. In the, in the exile from Eden, you see this vanishing of joy. And in this causes deep shame. Now, not only were Adam and Eve shameful of themselves, being, being offspring of Adam, our first father, we too are born into shame. And not only are we born into shame, but we generate our own kind of shame by the sins that we do and the things that we leave undone, the sins of omission and the sins of commission. And it's easy for us to make our way through life being bogged down, loaded down with guilt and shame for the sin that we have done. To, to have this feeling that, that deep at my core, there is something wrong with me, that there's something broken in me. And, and I know that, and, and you know that. There's something dysfunctional, defiled, and unclean about it. Now, I think that there's people who walked into this room today feeling bogged down with shame. You think back of what you've done over the last week, things that you said, you did, things that you thought, things that you know are sinful, things that are ugly. And you may have come in with an acute awareness of your uncleanliness, Right? And you're like, you're kind of pushing it. You're thinking to yourself, I'm pushing now. I know that I'm broken. I know I've got this sin corruption to heart that's going on. And how is it that I can walk into a space like this and God not strike me down? This awareness of our, our shame, awareness of our brokenness, it may not feel like it, but it is God's grace to you. Shame is a means of grace. It's a means of grace where God provokes us in a way that, that reveals to us our reality, where, who we are to the core, but then doesn't leave us there. God in his loving kindness drives us to seek cleansing and purification and restoration so that we would no longer be defiled. But here's the deal. Our society, our culture, our flesh, the enemy, doesn't want us to think of shame as a, as a grace from God. We're told that shame is bad. Shame must be avoided at all cost. Um, to feel shame is a net loss. It's useless. There's no function in it. And so what happens is you get a, a couple of categories of people that when they have this idea from our culture or the flesh or the enemy who's trying to tell us to, uh, to ignore or, or to sidestep the shame, we end up doing a few different things. One, we might try to ignore the shame, to, 
to say, yeah, to feel that, that prick, to feel that, like, that jolt, that beacon light going off and just pretend like it's not there. And you try to drown it out and you try to drown it one of two ways. Well, there's probably a lot of ways, but either by, either by hanging out with people who are worse off than you so you feel better about yourself or you self-medicate. You make yourself numb to that kind of feeling, whether it's video games or shopping or substances or whatever that thing might be. You try to medicate yourself to avoid feeling. Other people will just dive right in, right? We'll say the thing that, that creates shame in your life, I'm just going to embrace that thing now. I'm not gonna fight against it. I'm gonna say that's who I am. That's my identity. And so we make a sin identity that says, well, I can't feel shame because this is me, right? If you want me to feel shame, then that means you don't like me. Or another approach people often take is to hide behind a religious facade that we substitute God's high standard with lower standards of our own, ones that we can actually hit. And when I hit them, or when I think I'm doing well in that moral category, I give myself a pat on the back. I try to sidestep the shame that the law of God invokes in me when I see it for what it is. So there's no shortage of ways to avoid feeling shame when we think that shame is a bad thing. But let me submit to you that each one of these ways of dealing with shame or avoiding shame or, or trying to bury the shame, each one of these is a self-preserving mindset that is rooted in fear. The reason why you do that is because you're afraid. You're afraid that if I admit my uncleanliness, that if I confess my sin, if I expose my shame for what it is, I'll get discarded. Pe people will see through the veneer of my religiosity and get, say, oh, nope, that dude's messed up. She's, she's a hot mess. Right? People push us away. Well, let alone what God thinks of us. We think that if our shame gets exposed, I'd forever be cut off from God and from others. The deep fear of loneliness and useful, uselessness. But the irony of this situation, the irony of this fear is unless shame is properly dealt with, you are already alone and useless. You're already detached from true and sustaining joy. See, God in his providence has created for us a cycle, a redemptive cycle of shame. And we see this, actually it was, it was part of our uh, liturgy this morning. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 7 to 9. It says, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so here, let me show you this cycle. He says, if you say you have no sin, then you're a liar, okay? You're, you're deceived. So as we realize we are sinners, shame comes behind that. It's just the automatic backfill of sin. But as shame comes, it, it doesn't leave us in that spot to make us feel icky and nasty forever. It's meant to move us towards God in confession. He says, but whoever confesses, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. And so in our confession, there's, we see God's faithfulness and his justice in forgiving sinners. And not only that, but purifying us of all sin. He says that he forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So as we realize sin, we have that, that prick of shame leads to confession. It brings us to the reality that in that God provides forgiveness and purification for all unrighteousness. And what that does, it then joins us in fellowship both to God and to one another. See, the thing that you most want, the thing that you are craving in your heart of hearts is only opened up to you through the gospel of Jesus Christ where sin is dealt with, not swept under the rug, pretend like it doesn't exist, but in a definitive and substantial way, sin and shame is dealt with once and forever. It says that Jesus, despising the shame, was nailed to the cross. See, the only cleaning agent that can clean our souls is the blood of Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, they had to rely on, on uh, ritual water washings. They had to rely on the blood of animals offered continually uh, over and over and over. But us as Christians, we get to rely on the redemption that comes through the blood of Jesus Christ, as Ephesians 1.7 says. This once and for all sacrifice is enough to cleanse us of our sins, to, to forgive us, to restore us to relationship with God and to loose all the guilty stains. The things that you are most ashamed about in your life, the things that you've not once confessed to anybody out of fear that they might never look at you the same, Jesus has dealt with those things. And there's a great old hymn that might sound weird to some of you, but it is good news for those of us who believe the gospel. It says, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood loose all their guilty states. This means that you are not defined by your worst day nor are you defined by your best day. For the Christian, your identity, your definition, who you are, your standing before God is purely based on the person and work of Jesus Christ. That he took your place on the cross, that you, that we deserve to be ashamed, nailed to a tree. But Jesus was our stand-in. 
And because he took your place on the cross, in him, by faith, you are secure. In him, by faith, you are safe. In him, by faith, you are reconciled to God. In him, by faith, you are redeemed. In him, by faith, you are brought together with all of the saints throughout time and space. In him, by faith, you are being sanctified, that there's this process based upon the justification that comes by grace alone through faith alone. Christ is working out that justification to make you more righteous, to make you more beautiful in Christ. Because this is what is most true about you, Christian because we cannot lose any of this, because it is as secure as you can imagine. This is why Christians ought to be the world's most joyful people. Even through trials, even through suffering, even through temptation and fighting the sin that wants to hold us back from living the abundant life that Jesus died to give us. Through it all, Christians are marked by rejoicing. Now, one of the ways that we express this joy each week is by coming together and singing. This is one of the really important rhythms that the church gives herself to week in and week out, regardless of feelings, Regardless of how hard our week was, we cement ourselves in the true reality that we have an incredibly bright future in Christ. That God does not leave us or forsake us. Singing is an essential part of the Christian life. And I would say, men, singing is an essential part of shepherding your family both here in the sanctuary and around the dinner table of singing and boasting in the work of God. To celebrate the forgiveness that Christ offers us, the cleansing that he does so, so that we could be made citizens in heaven. So as the people of Jerusalem, back in Nehemiah 12, rejoice in what God has done to bring us to, them, that, to that moment of time, we rejoice in what God has done to bring us into the kingdom of heaven. And our baptism and our participation in the Lord's Supper reminds us of that reality. Christians rejoice greatly because we have great reason to rejoice. God has done what we cannot do in and of ourselves. And as we receive such lavish gifts from God, the cleansing, the redemption, the restoration, the fellowship, all, all the, the gifts that have been poured out upon those who belong to God, all the provisions God has made for us, our joy is not only evidenced in song, but in radical generosity. When the gospel affects you, it not only loosens the stains of your heart, it loosens tight fists. 
Because the radical generosity of God that he given his only beloved son, that he emptied out heaven, heaven has no more to give than what God has already given. It changes us to give freely. And we see this as we move to verse 44. Listen, I, I had no intentions. I feel like this has been a theme that keeps coming up over the last few weeks about like making this a sermon series about generosity and tithing and giving. But this is an essential piece of a community that is fixed on God. The people in verse 44 through 47 bring in their tithes and their offerings because all great parties have great gifts. And one of the things that we see here is as they experience this explosive joy, right, this, this joy that the, reverberates through the hilltops and the surrounding cities, this is also a sustaining joy. A joy that invests and sacrifices, that, that takes resources and money and, and uses them at, as fuel to sustain the future joys which enables gospel ministry to take place for the training of the saints, equipping them for the work of the ministry, for the teaching and the preaching of the word of God. So that by giving, by using our resources and, and, and experiencing this joy that makes us uh, be generous people, that joy-provoked gift is a means to provoke other people's joy as well. It enables the mission to carry on. See, we see here in this party, a huge party, where God has, God set the table. God, God did it all. And the people just get to benefit from all his work and his kindness and his grace. And in this whole thing, the people get swept up in it. I want to be a church that gives people the same kind of vibes as Nehemiah chapter 12. The kind of church that the police get called on a regular basis because we're just too darn loud in here on Sunday mornings. The kind of church that won't stop singing for what the Lord has done. The kind of church that has this kingdom-building mindset that God is using us to establish his kingdom and expand it. <clears throat> That's the kind of church that I hope that we become more and more. And I believe, I gotta take a drink here. I believe that as we've been watching God establish for himself a people throughout the story of Nehemiah, God has been doing the same thing here. God has been establishing for himself, rebuilding for himself a people fully devoted to God who love his word, that want to see his mission advance. And so let us receive God's gift of grace with joy and gladness. Let us respond as we see the people here in this chapter responding to God with song and generosity. Now, I, I wanna say this, that if you're not a Christian, we don't want your money. If you're not a Christian, I don't, I don't want you to give anything. What I would want for you today is to receive the grace from God that he has for you in the person and work of Jesus. 
the grace that cleanses you of all sin and unrighteousness that establishes you in the care and provision of God, now and forever. But for those of us who have received, let us continue to receive with joy. And as we receive, let us unleash the praises and resources so the kingdom of heaven would advance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. We realize that in salvation, the only thing that we bring to the table is our brokenness. The only thing that we bring to the table is our stiff-necked disobedience and stubborn hearts. And in your kindness and in your grace, you have taken people like us who are hell-bent rebels, and you have won us over to be your beloved sons and daughters. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you, Lord, that you are not only building for yourself uh, a people, but a church and advancing the kingdom of heaven. I pray that you would help us to get swept up in what you're doing, Lord. Just as Jesus taught us to pray, to pray that, that it would be on earth as it is in heaven, and that we would know, Lord, that we would have the discernment from the Spirit to know how to swing our hammers, how to build in a way that advances your kingdom here, that brings you glory, so that more people would come to know the grace and gift of Jesus. We love you, and we thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.